All right, let's take a quick look ahead at everything that we covered from this past week. First off, it's Hemolize. Does that doom your child to a second poke, or can you just ignore that blood sample? After that, hit your head. Perhaps you shouldn't get your head back in the game, but you might be able to go back to school. Following that, a new taser is in town, and it's good for us to know a few things about it. Then from the fourth article, options besides thrombolytics for high-risk PEs. They matter. And then finally, just what I've been waiting for, a reason to give less fluids. Excited? I'm excited. Unfortunately, if you are hearing this right now, then you are not currently a Journal Feed subscriber, and so you will not be receiving the full Journal Feed podcast, only getting a portion of the past week's summaries. Now, don't worry, they're all good articles, but if you would like to get full access to both the podcast and the blog, then you'll have to become a member. All the details for that are at journalfeed.org. And remember, we don't ever want money to be a barrier to any form of patient care. So if you're having any trouble affording a subscription, please get in touch and we'll help you out. This is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by our lovely authors, Vivian Lay, Katan Patel, Aaron Lacey, Millie Koss, myself, and Clay Smith. So let's get right into the first article titled Hyperkalemia in a Hemolyzed Sample in Pediatric Patients. Repeat or do not repeat out of the Journal of Pediatric Emergency Care. Now, fake hyperkalemia or pseudo-hyperkalemia, the kind we cause by hemolyzing blood samples. Most of the time, it's possible to just kind of clinically correlate well enough to know that there's just no way that your patient's actual serum sodium is anywhere near as high as you see in a hemolyzed sample. But sometimes, at least sometimes, there could at least be a possibility and that plants the seed of doubt. The question is whether or not you should repeat the sample. Is it really necessary with these humanized samples, or can we just ignore it? It'd be nice to have some data on that. And here it is. This was a prospective analysis from a pediatric emergency department where patients had high potassium levels from hemolyzed samples. They included 187 patients, which to me sounds like a tiny number. They recruited over a five-year period, and you're only able to get 187 patients? I don't know what your lab's doing, but my lab humanizes things way more often than that. Granted, it wasn't a very high-volume center. They only had about 16,000 visits per year, but still. Either way, 145 of the patients had repeat metabolic panels done, and 98% of them showed a normal potassium. There were only three that had hyperkalemia in the repeats. One of them had known renal failure and was actually referred to the hospital because of suspected electrolyte abnormalities, and the other two had DKA. All reasons why you would be sending repeat samples no matter what numbers you got, honestly. The only thing that was significantly associated with a true hyperkalemia was age. Being older made you more at risk. That leaves underlying medical conditions, the degree of hemolysis, the initial potassium, an abnormal BUN or creatinine, and all of those were not associated with higher odds of true hyperkalemia. Now, the authors propose that in patients with a low suspicion of true hyperkalemia and a normal BUN or creatinine, then you could just forego repeating the test. You could just ignore it. That's nice to see. I like being justified by evidence to not repeat the samples when the potassium level is just way out of whack and there's no way it could have possibly been that high. But I feel like the sample size from this study was really low. 
I'd like to see this repeated from a larger center because I suspect that if there were significant associations, I just it's just not well-powered enough to see them. I'd also like to see this repeated in adults. In a spoonful, if the potassium doesn't make any sense on your metabolic panel, the BUN and creatinine is normal and the sample is hemolyzed, then you can probably ignore it, at least in kids. Okay, let's skip over to the fifth and final article. Titled, Early Restrictive or Liberal Fluid Management for Sepsis-Induced Hypotension out of the New England Journal of Medicine. Rage against the fluids regime. Fluids, fluids, fluids. Doctors are absolutely obsessed. And in recent years, we've only finally started to see that overhydration isn't as wonderful for our patients as we've always wished it was. Most of the literature has unfortunately come out of the ICU, which is still relevant to us, but we come before the ICU. We need information on initial management. What should our mindset be? And could we possibly reasonably restrict fluids? Now, what we've got here is something to actually help us answer this question. We have the Clover's RCT, a trial done in 60 U.S. centers to gather 1,500 patients and randomize them to restrictive or liberal fluids after the diagnosis of sepsis-induced hypotension. The liberal fluids group consisted of a starting bolus of one liter of crystalloids, boom, right off the bat, followed by an additional bolus of fluids as necessary with rescue vasopressors if needed. The restrictive group primarily received pressors and then were given rescue fluids PRN, just to kind of flip that on its head. Both groups before enrollment received two liters of IV fluids before they were randomized. So if you think about it, the liberal group actually got three liters of fluid right off the bat. Now, the trial was supposed to have more people, but it was stopped early because of the lack of a difference between the two groups. It was ended for futility. The mortality rates were 14% compared to 15%, a p-value of 0.6. Additionally, there was no difference in secondary outcomes either, like the number of days off the ventilator, renal replacement therapy numbers, or the number of days out of the ICU or hospital. Oh, 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 I actually love to see this. This is great to see. Though I doubt it'll change the practice of many, I would consider both groups to probably have been fluid replete before they even got randomized. Frankly, while official recommendations seem to be that you should start with a 30cc per kg bolus, that, is always, that has been questionable. We're always advocating for thoughtful use of medications, and yet fluids, which are medication in our hands, are given as a knee-jerk reaction all the time. Give things some thought. Treat the problem. Don't just give fluids. I wonder if the liberal group had less ICU consultations, though. That's a number that I'd like to see in future trials. Wouldn't it be fun to normalize short courses of peripherally given pressors until antibiotics have had their chance to act? Now, I know this would delay calling the ICU, which is unfortunate, but on the other hand, it would also delay calling the ICU, which could be nice because it would give patients a little bit of time to kind of declare themselves. And in this trial, as we saw, there is no change in the number of days in the ICU or hospital. So if you think your patient would be off pressers rather quickly, maybe you could give them a short course and they could still go to internal medicine afterwards. In a spoonful, it's becoming increasingly viable and even evidence-based not to drown your patients with fluids. Okay, let's do our wrap-up. What did we learn today? From the first article, I know you want to ignore hyperkalemia in hemolyzed samples, and now you're much more justified. So long as you have a very low clinical suspicion for true hyperkalemia, and it's probably best to also make sure that the BUN and creatinine are normal too. 
And then from the last article, the Clover's RCT seems to show that initial fluid management in sepsis needs not to be so aggressive with the fluids. Two liters, then move to pressors is reasonable, but it also doesn't seem to be better than giving more fluids up front. Now, just because the body can tolerate the fluids doesn't mean it needs them, though. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where the newsletter is the best way to make the podcast into a bite-sized nugget of space repetition. Now, if you're feeling like you missed out, you'd like to hear more of these articles, more of this podcast, then come over and join us in the members feed. Our goal here is for you to read less, learn more, and hopefully save lives. One spoonful at a time. Thank you.